It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 317 for November 4th, 2012. This week, your new office will be ready soon. Beware that thumb drive. Remember the Y2K problem? Another is coming. And in short circuits, a quick look at electronic voting machines. Microsoft spins Windows 8 sales. And holiday buyers who use PayPal will receive price protection. Yeah, I know with Election Day just around the corner, you're really excited to hear that voting machine story. But let's start with Microsoft Office. The day before Windows 8 became available, Microsoft released Office 2013 to manufacturing and then made the code available to TechNet subscribers. I'd been using the preview edition, and the preview code is similar to the final version, but I suspect that some debugging code had been maintained in the preview, and that led to a few operational problems, so I really wasn't willing to say much about it, pro or con. With the RTM version in hand and on computer, I can say something, but mostly what I can say is pro. But I have a warning. If you're still running Windows XP or any earlier version of Windows, forget the upgrade. Office 2013 works only on Windows 7 and Windows 8. One of the more striking aspects of the new interface is how plain it is. For years, Microsoft did everything possible to give applications a three-dimensional look, and Office 2013 appears to have had a very close encounter with a steamroller. That's not a criticism, but the stark flat look is a major change from previous versions of Office. Although I've been running Windows 8 on two notebook computers for months, my primary desktop computer still runs Windows 7. Office 2013 is installed on all of the computers. You're probably wondering if Office 2013 is just Office 2010 with a new modern interface. In other words, the interface formerly known as Metro. Well, the short answer is no. And here's the longer answer. You're going to find a lot of new features in Office 2013. Some you'll love, and some, well, maybe not so much. Microsoft assumes that you will want to save your files on the Internet, or if you prefer, in the cloud. I can see many advantages of using Microsoft's SkyDrive, not the least of which would be to have a working document such as the one that I use to create this report available to me from any computer that has an Internet connection, so I could work on it whenever I had time. The problem with this approach, though, is that saving and accessing documents is much slower than when the document is saved locally, so I'm still undecided about the value of this feature and may limit it to specific documents that I know I'll want to make available via the Internet. I particularly like the start screens. Here you'll see the most commonly used templates. For most of the applications, you'll see a blank document. There will be several formatting options, maybe even a seasonal template. Whether important or not, Microsoft decided to color code these pages. Blue for Word, green for Excel, orange for PowerPoint, and green once again for Publisher. Now, generally speaking, it's pretty easy to tell the difference between a Word document and a spreadsheet, even without the color coding. 
Instead of the much-despised track changes bubbles, Word 2013 offers two views, one that places change bars in the margin while omitting any indication of what changes were made, and another that omits the change bars but shows every insertion or deletion in a separate pane that can be shown to the left of the document or below it. I think editors are going to like that one. Microsoft applications have made it possible to save documents in Adobe's Portable Document Format, or PDF, for several years now, but Word can open and edit a PDF. After editing the document, you can save it as a PDF or as a Word document. The most recent version of Adobe Acrobat offers the ability to edit PDF documents, too, and claims to reflow text, but that text reflow is limited to individual blocks of text. Microsoft's PDF editing is much more robust, and when text is added to a PDF, all of the remaining text in the document is pushed down. But, of course, you're wondering, does it work on a tablet? Well, let me answer that question with another question. Should it? Well, yes, the Office applications, and that would be Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Publisher, Access, Outlook, and so on, do work on tablets. They don't work particularly well on a tablet, and anybody who thinks they should is probably a few kittens short of a litter. Tablets are not intended for use in situations where people spend all day editing Word documents, creating PowerPoint presentations, running what-if scenarios in Excel, or building large relational database applications in Access. Tablets will be used to review Word or Excel documents, possibly to make some minor changes. They might be used to run an SQL query on a remote Access database. But tablets don't have keyboards, and these applications need keyboards. Office 2013 applications are designed to work optimally on desktop computers. The fact that they work at all on a two-pound tablet with no keyboard or mouse should be considered an astounding feat of programming. And just to carry that tangent a little further, it's sometimes kind of amusing to review online discussions, but sometimes it's depressing, too, because so many people seem not to comprehend the challenges faced by people who write the programs that we use on our computers. Those who describe the ribbon interface that Microsoft introduced in the 2007 version of Office as useless are particularly distressing. Now, I can understand how somebody might have looked at the ribbon way back in 2007 and have been confused for maybe five minutes. But now, five years later, come on, get over it. The ribbon isn't perfect by any means, but it attempts to display the functions that the user might be expected to need at any given time. When you're typing text, the table functions and the image functions aren't displayed. But click inside a table, and you'll immediately see two items appear on the ribbon, Table Tools Design and Table Tools Layout. Or select a picture, and suddenly, Picture Tools Format will appear on the ribbon. So tell me again, great detractors, how is this illogical, stupid, difficult to comprehend, or bad design? I am not a Microsoft apologist, but sometimes I wish that people who don't comprehend improved design would just continue to load DOS 6 on their computers, run their 1987 copies of WordStar, print their files to antique dot matrix printers, and leave the rest of us alone. I apologize for that rant, but as a former Microsoft Word hater, I feel that I've earned my stripes by coming to understand and even appreciate what Microsoft is trying to do. But let's move on to some of the other applications. Excel, for example. Even if you're a words person like I am, I think you'll like Excel. So maybe you're a data analyst. Well, I 
play one of those sometimes, and I like what I see in Excel 2013. Flash Fill is simply one of the coolest new features I've ever seen. Just about everybody who uses Excel knows that it's possible to fill a few consecutive cells with consecutive numbers, like 1, 2, 3, and then drag the selector out to 100,000 or 100,000 cells to automatically fill in the full sequence. Big deal, old stuff, so who cares? But what if you have a spreadsheet that consists of two columns of data, first name in one column, last name in the other, and maybe you'd like to combine those columns? Well, that's pretty easy. There's a concatenate formula that'll do that. It's been around for years. Well, maybe you don't want to create a formula and then copy that formula to every cell in column C. Okay, so here's how easy it is with Flash Fill. The spreadsheet I had in front of me had names. For example, Rick in column A and Altman in column B. In column C, I typed Rick Altman, first name and last name. Then I pressed Control-Enter and Control-E. Excel automatically filled in the rest of the column with first name, last name pairs. Now, I only had about 100 names on that list, but what if I'd had 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000? Or what if I need something more? Well, I clicked in column C and I typed, your first name is Rick and your last name is Altman. So I'm combining the text, your first name is and your last name is, with the name Rick and Altman. Well, then I used Flash Fill. And you know what? It worked. Excel does have a number of other new features, but if this one doesn't convince you that upgrading is worthwhile, then I'm wasting my voice, your time, and all the electrons used to create this podcast. And then there's Outlook. Am I a fan of Outlook? Well, for email, no. But Outlook's calendar and task list are worthwhile, and even the email component continues to improve. It's not improved so much that I have any plans to abandon the bat anytime soon as my primary email program, but it continues to get better. And one note, this has been one of my favorite Office applications for years, but it's one that few people are aware of. If you need to keep track of information about procedures and processes, but you don't need a full project management application, OneNote is for you. I've been using OneNote to organize TechBiter podcasts for years, and the 2013 version improves the ability to share lists across various computers. The new features include the ability to embed other Office document types inside OneNote. You can create or import an Excel spreadsheet or a Visio diagram into OneNote, then edit these files in OneNote, and the changes are exported back to the original programs. So, the bottom line for Office 2013? I don't have a clue. It's too early to tell. Expect more in-depth reports on the various Office components in early 2013. What I've seen so far is just the leading edge of an enormous product. If you'd like more information, you can visit the Microsoft website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And once you visit that link, you can download the preview version if you want to. thumb drives do you have? These things are all but indispensable these days because they can hold gigabytes of data that you can transfer from the office to home and back again. 
but they are a nightmare for the IT department, and some companies even forbid their use. If you're caught with one, you can be fired. That's because thumb drives with gigabytes of corporate data can be lost or stolen. Thumb drives are also common vectors for viruses and malware, so it's important to protect yourself, protect your company, protect your home computer, and protect your thumb drive. The first USB drives came from Israel, and I remember bringing one home after PC Expo 2001. The 16 megabyte disk on key was the mid-sized drive. There was an 8 megabyte drive that cost less and a 32 megabyte drive that cost more. The company was planning USB solid state drives as large as 256 megabytes, astonishing in those days, for around $1,000. Well, today you can buy a 16 gigabyte drive for around $10, maybe even less. And 64 gigabyte drives are reasonably priced at $30 to $40. So it's easy to carry around an enormous number of files, some of which may contain your employer's proprietary information. Some companies do forbid the use of USB drives without express permission from the IT department. And this isn't an unreasonable stance. We've all probably heard about entire laptops belonging to the FBI being stolen. And it's even easier to lose or have someone steal a USB stick. But these devices are incredibly useful. So can the utility and the danger be reconciled? Well, there are applications that could make the thumb drive reasonably safe. For example, encrypt the data on your USB drive with TrueCrypt. This is an open-source application that can be used to protect files on desktop and notebook computers. It also provides additional security for proprietary data on a USB drive. Just run the program and tell it to encrypt the USB drive. You can download it at the TrueCrypt website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. TrueCrypt comes with a large instruction file, and you should read that file before you use the application. Because in addition to encrypting all the files on a thumb drive, TrueCrypt can also destroy all the files on a thumb drive. In either case, they'll be unreadable by crooks, but if you do it the right way, they'll still be readable by you. One simple thing you can do is simply write protect the thumb drive. As I mentioned, thumb drives are common vectors for viruses and malware. To make sure that your thumb drive stays clean, you could write protect it, some drives have a physical switch that sets them to read-only status. And then even if you plug the drive into a device that's infected, the portable device is still protected. Only a few drives have a physical switch, though, so you might want to consider using WriteProtect software. Iron Geek has a solution that it calls a poor man's USB write blocker. Thumbscrew allows you to enable or disable writing to all USB mass storage devices on a Windows system. That means you can make your USB flash drive, hard drive inside the computer, or an IDE or SATA drive in an external enclosure read-only. The developer cautions, though, that he makes no guarantee as to its forensic validity. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website where you can download Thumbscrew. One of the program's limitations is the fact that it can write-protect USB devices only on computers where it's been installed. That means that if you plug your USB device into an infected computer where Thumbscrew hasn't been installed, there's no protection. So because of Thumbscrew's limitations, you need to make sure that autorun.inf is set to read-only. That's the file the operating system reads and executes when you plug in the thumb drive. If your thumb drive doesn't have an autorun.inf file, create a blank text file with no contents and save it, then write protect it. If the file is present, 
set its properties to System and Read Only. Once you've done that, malware may still be installed on the drive, but at least it won't automatically run when you plug it into something. And of course, in addition to anything else, just practice safe computing. That's really your last and best line of defense. If you find what appears to be a lost USB drive, don't take it inside and plug it into your office computer. If you must plug it into some computer, let that be a computer that's unimportant to you. Your co-worker's computer, for example. Now, don't do that either. And be sure it's not connected to your corporate or home LAN at the time. And be careful about what devices you plug your USB drive into, too. It's been a few years, but do you remember the Y2K problem? The Millennium Bug was either a big deal and we dodged the bullet by spending time and money to fix problems in advance, or it was a colossal waste of time and efforts because the problems weren't very large. There's supporting evidence for both conjectures, but now the 2038 Bug is approaching. Yeah, the 2038 Bug. In the early days of data processing, when storage was expensive, every bit counted, and years were stored as two digits. When the dates rolled over from 1999, or 99, to 2000, or 00, the concern was that many computer programs would fail. This was a problem that programmers had known about for decades, but little was done until the late 1990s. The goal was to ensure several outcomes. Number one, that no valid date would cause any interruption in operations. That calculations of durations between or the sequence of pairs of dates would be correct, whether the dates are in different centuries. Third, that in all interfaces and all storage, the century must be unambiguous, either specified directly or calculable by algorithm. And number four, the year 2000 must be recognized as a leap year. In addition to the zero-zero problem, many computer programs would not have recognized 2000 as a leap year. That's because some programmers didn't understand the compound rule that states years that are exactly divisible by 100 are not leap years unless they are also evenly divisible by 400. That last part is what a lot of programmers missed. So 2000 was a leap year, but many programs would not have recognized it as such, and that could have caused some serious problems for industries such as transportation, banking, and any other industry that's dependent on knowing whether any given day is, for example, a Friday or a Saturday. I was reminded of all that this week when I had the need to convert a date that people can read, for example, 1 November 2012 at 10.40.52 in the morning, into a Unix timestamp that a computer can use, 135, 178, 4452. That long number states the date and time in reference to the Unix epoch, which began at midnight, January 1st, 1970. 135, 178, 4452 is the number of seconds between that time and the 1st of November 2012 at 52 seconds past 1040. 1 billion, 351 million, 784, 452 seconds. The problem is that in 2038, 32-bit computers will run out of numbers. 
In Unix-speak, the timestamp, or time underscore t, is stored as a signed 32-bit integer representing the number of seconds since the 1st of January 1970. In 2038, that number will exceed the largest number that can be represented by a signed 32-bit integer. So now we have the Unix Millennium Bug, or the Y2K38 bug, to contend with. The expected solution, and one that's already been implemented by some systems, is simply to convert the 32-bit timestamp to a 64-bit timestamp. 32-bit numbers cover approximately 136 years, from the 13th of December 1901 to the 19th of January 2038. By increasing the number to 64 bits, programmers will be able to buy a little extra time. The new date range will be able to count back into history many times the estimated age of the universe and forward approximately 293 billion years. In other words, this is a fix we're not going to have to worry about again for a while. In Short Circuits, with the election literally around the virtual corner, an article in MIT's Technology Review caught my eye this week. In the article, research editor Mike Orcutt discussed the voting machines that are used in various states, including the so-called battleground states, of which Ohio is one. Having served as a poll worker for a few years, I found the short article particularly good reading. Orcutt provided a map in the article called States with the Riskiest Voting Technology. You'll see that map on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And what should be most concerning for any voter from any party who supports any candidate for any office should be those electronic voting machines that have no paper audit trail. Here in Franklin County, the voting machines record votes on removable cards, similar to those that you'll find in digital cameras. These cards are taken out of the machines and returned to the Board of Elections immediately after the election. They are delivered with certain other critical materials by the presiding judge or manager of the precinct and a member of the opposing party. The machines in and around Columbus also print a paper audit on a roll of paper that stays in the voting machine following the election. Now, although this doesn't eliminate the risk of malicious or accidental programming errors, it does at least provide a level of accountability that cannot be provided by machines that have no paper audit trail. Those are the machines that computer scientists have warned about for years. Orcutt cites 17 states in which electronic voting machines without paper audit capabilities are used, and I quote the article, another 13 states, including battleground states such as Nevada, Wisconsin, Ohio, and North Carolina, have at least some polling stations that use voting machines with a precautionary measure, a receipt that can be checked later, so-called voter-verified paper audit trail. These machines are still vulnerable to software glitches, but voters at least have a chance to spot errors and make sure their vote gets registered and recorded accurately. End quote. 
Although all electronic voting machines are vulnerable, those without audit capabilities make problems difficult to spot and impossible to correct. Some states have moved away from electronic voting machines and have started using paper ballots, which create their own audit trail automatically. The paper ballots are then scanned by machines, so if questions arise, the paper ballots can easily be compared to the scanned results. Voters in Oregon vote entirely on paper ballots because they vote by mail. The state established vote by mail as the standard mechanism for voting with a 1998 ballot measure. It passed by 70% to 30%, and voters seemed to like it. A 2003 survey by the University of Oregon showed 81% of respondents favored the system, and it was overwhelmingly supported by Democrats, 85%, and Republicans, 76%. In addition, 30% of respondents said they voted more often since vote-by-mail was enacted. This week, Steve Ballmer announced that Microsoft sold 4 million Windows 8 upgrades in the past week and seemed to be proud that the upgrade sales beat Apple's Mountain Lion by 1 million compared to the first four days of Mountain Lion sales. So what? Apple's sales have been rising, but Apple still has, at most, a 15% share of the market. So shouldn't Microsoft have sold about 17 million copies instead of 4 million? I get that by assuming that 15 is to 85 as 3 is to whatever Microsoft should have sold. Trying to compare Apple buyers to Windows buyers is comparing almost literally apples to oranges. Still, Balmer called the results stunning. Well, stunning can be good stunning or bad stunning, and Balmer didn't say which. He also didn't talk about sales of Microsoft's Surface tablets. This could be because it's very difficult to obtain valid sales numbers just four days after a product goes on the market. Microsoft sold upgrade downloads online, so those figures would be available immediately, and that's probably what Balmer was talking about. Retail sales figures probably won't be available for a few weeks. So Microsoft's Windows 8 will certainly outsell Apple's Mountain Lion and my earlier 15% market share figure for Apple, actually gave Microsoft the edge in the comparison. According to PC Magazine, Windows still retains a nearly 92% market share. That compares to Apple's slightly more than 7%, with Linux picking up the scraps. So, let's do the math again. 92 is to 7, as 3 is to what? Well, given those ratios, Microsoft should have sold more than 39 million copies just to match Apple's sales. Steve Ballmer probably knows this, but he's still delighted by being able to say that Microsoft beat Apple, even though the numbers make no sense at all.
PayPal introduced a new program this week that offers a refund if the price of something you buy using your PayPal account drops within 30 days. This isn't a new technique. Retail stores have used it for years, but it is new for PayPal. The goal is obvious. PayPal wants more shoppers to do their holiday buying with it instead of with Visa, MasterCard, or American Express. Buy something with PayPal, and if the item is advertised for a lower price by any merchant within 30 days, PayPal will reimburse the difference in price. The offer is good for online purchases and those made at stores that accept PayPal. PayPal is pushing physical stores to accept payments from it. So far, Home Depot and Office Depot are among the stores that have signed on. Price-matching deal is probably seen as a pretty good way to put in direct pressure on other stores. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.